I'm uh, really always privileged to preach, uh, and uh, I'm grateful to Keith and Steve for inviting me to preach. But I tell you what, they're never here when I do preach. Now, they either invite me and they go somewhere else because they trust me, or they invite me and then leg it when they know I'm preaching. Oh, we're going, because they're never here. Last time I preached, they were never here. So, boys, I hope you're listening on the, on the tape or whatever we have these days. We're on a series on encountering God. Uh, and I'm going to talk about Jacob wrestling with God. And uh, people are timing me. We had a, a little um, laugh at my, our missional community a few weeks ago about lengths of sermon. So Malcolm's timing me. He's going to give me some signals. I'm not going to tell you what I'm aiming for just in case I miss it. But anyway, if you see Malcolm twitching, it'll be because he's giving me a signal. Uh, so we're going to try and keep it tight and pack in some stuff. If you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to Genesis 32? Or if you've got a phone or you turn to press a few buttons, whatever that is. We're going to look at Jacob wrestling with God. While you're finding Genesis 32, I'm going to give you a little um, patchwork story and jigsaw of what's happened up to this point. And in Genesis 25, Rebecca, who is um, Jacob's mum, she becomes pregnant with twins. Uh, and even in the womb, they start to jostle. That's the word it uses in the Bible. They start to jostle. Esau, the hairy one, he's also called Edom, the red one, was a skillful hunter. He was loved by his dad, Isaac. Jacob means grabs the heel or deceiver, and he was more of a homely, quieter man, liked cooking, and he was loved by his mum, Rebecca. Uh, the chapter ends by Esau impulsively uh, selling his birthright because he wants to have some stew that has been cooked. Genesis 27, Jacob cons his dad out of, uh, out of the blessing he should have given to his brother, but that was helped by his mum. So it's a bit of a weird family, or normal family. Jacob flees from his brother because he's about to be killed by him. That's all in Genesis 27. Genesis 28, Jacob has a dream where he sees angels going up and down to heaven. Genesis 29 and 30, um, Jacob goes to his uncle Laban, falls in love with his daughter, works for seven years only to be given his other daughter as a wife. All normal stuff. Um, And so he has to work for another seven years for the actual girl he loves. Um, She has difficulty conceiving um, his favoured wife, so he sleeps with uh, her maidservant, has children by her and his other wife, uh, children with his other wife and her maidservant, and the 12 tribes of Israel, including Joseph, are born from this normal mess. Um, His flocks increase, not least for our cunning scheme he has for flecked and non-flecked sheep. Uh, Genesis 31 and 2, he flees Laban because he fears his disapproval. He reconciles with his uncle. Uh, and then he seeks out reconciliation with his estranged brother, who he hasn't seen for 20 years. And it'd be fair to say he's extremely worried about meeting him. Uh, he's so worried he really wheels and deals and sends four sets of flocks ahead of him to pacify his brother. Uh, he also sends his family ahead of him, which I thought was very brave. Um, but he's extremely worried about meeting his brother, and this is where we come into the story. Genesis 32. Why don't we just read that out together? Um, Yeah, I'm reading from the NIV. But Genesis 32, 22 to 30. Let's just read it together. Let's wake wake ourselves up. That night, Jacob got up and took his two... Are you in the same place? Genesis 32, 22. Right, okay. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and the man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. 
Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Well, there we go. Um, My first point today, with some pictures from Google and from Steve Jones as well, um, is we need to stop pretending. You see, Jacob was a bit of a wheeler dealer. I think his dad and his granddad, Abraham and Isaac, were a bit more classic men of God. They weren't perfect, but Abraham certainly was a really classic man of faith. Um, They were very illustrious in the stories, and they were pretty much more straightforward, a bit more classic, I think, as men of God. Jacob is a wheeler dealer. He cheats his brother out of his birthright. He steals the blessing of his brother again from Esau. Um, he, reverse, he gets a reverse of this wheeling and dealing when he has to sort of compete for his wives and work for his wives and Laban wheels and deals with him. So he gets a taste of his own medicine. He wheels and deals with Laban's flocks. And he, this is not a perfect man. And I absolutely love the candor of the Bible. Because it does not try and change this. We had an open evening at school on Thursday. And I tell you, we painted walls. We tidied classrooms. We uh, put curtains up that weren't there before. We added spotlights. And also, it's right that when somebody comes to your house, you tidy it up. It's natural, isn't it? You can pay people around for dinner. You tidy your house. That's what we did as a school. The Bible does not try and do this with the people that it portrays. There was no airbrushing in those days. There was no Photoshop. But the metaphorical point is that the Bible does not try and hide the fact that these people are not perfect. And we'll see through the story that, uh, that Jacob is definitely not perfect. You know, and I can only assume that the Bible doesn't airbrush out the imperfections of Jacob because God doesn't. Of course it's true that God wants us to improve and we're his children so he disciplines us. Sure, if we're sinning we should stop. But he doesn't, the imperfection of Jacob is not the key point of this story. His authenticity and engagement are key. I'm just going to read a quote from R. Paul Stephen, Down to Earth Spirituality. Jacob's name can mean cheat, and he lives up to his name. He is manipulative, deceptive, and aggressive. Not someone who would qualify as a well-scrubbed member of that first church. Jacob is a seriously flawed person, growing up in a dysfunctional family. He seems to be always getting into trouble, or just getting out of it, or about to make some more trouble. We wouldn't let him teach a course on prayer, or become our spiritual director in order to get our life centered on God. But he has one redeeming quality that dominates his story. He wants God. He has a passion to be blessed by God. He wants his life to be saturated with blessing, and who wouldn't? And you have to know, although Esther, Esther was leading worship with James, she's my wife, we have talked about this in a week, so there could be some coordination between the worship and this preach. But those prophetic words that came earlier, 
No coordination at all. We don't synchronize everything like that as a church. But God's speaking, isn't he, about reaching out to him. Um, Bex virtually might have preached my sermon. And we sh- you would have been pleased. It was just a couple of minutes, wasn't it? Which is not going to be the case here. But that's God synchronizing stuff. Jacob's story is so uniform, universal, because it's so personal. He grows up with an emotionally distanced father, distant father and bonds deeply with his mother. The family is fragmented and messy. While his parents' marriage began in love, his mother and father grew emotionally distant from each other, and each parent saw intimacy and solace in a favorite child. A distant father, an overbearing mother, an overpowering brother, wives he can't please, a manipulative father-in-law, children who were alienated from each other, this is the stuff not only of Jacob's story, but all too often of our own. It is in this messy complexity of family life that Jacob's identity, vocation, and spirituality are forged and hammered. That's the first point I want to make, is that this story is our story. He may not have a dysfunctional family, he may not be a wheeler-dealer, but his imperfection is our imperfection. And the thing is, the Bible doesn't airbrush this out, because the kingdom of God is made up of Jacob's, it's made up of me and you. And it, this story, up till now, he's been pretending. And God comes to him and he says, what is your name? Now, in the Old Testament, names were really, really important. So it wasn't just, um, I mean, he was called Jacob because he grabbed the heel of his twin brother as he came out. I mean, if I named my kids after what they looked like when they were born, it would be like blotchy pink one. <laughs> or angry purple one. I mean, there's a slightly weird culture that you name the child exactly what you see at the time. But when God says to him, this angel says to him, what is your name? This is not just a literal question. He's saying to you, who are you? Jacob, up until now, he's been wheeling and dealing and getting blessing in different ways and manipulating stuff and cutting deals all over the place. You see, up until this point in the story, Jacob has refused to reveal his name in some key points. In Genesis 27, 18, when he goes to his father to nick the blessing of his brother, his father asks him, who is it? Then he has to lie. He says, I am Esau. It's the first bit of covering himself. In Genesis 29, 12, when he meets the woman of his dreams, you think it'd be a confident time. She asks him, who are you? And he doesn't tell her, doesn't tell her his name. I'm not greatly up with uh, chat-up lines and things. It seems to me that meeting someone who you want to get on with, you would tell them your name. It seems like normal behavior to me, but he doesn't. He says, I'm a, I'm a relative of your father and a son of Rebecca. So there's a theme here with Jacob where he's, just, he's hiding his name. He's sort of hiding himself in order to get what he needs. So when God comes to him and says, what is your name? It's a really fundamental question about who he is. God engineers a series of scenes to hold up mirrors to his life to get him to admit and see who he really is. You see, at the point that that Jacob's got all his strategies in place, he's got all his wheelie and dealie in place, I think God can only bless him a little bit. But God's plan is to bring Jacob to himself in order to bring him to God and life. As it says in that same book, there can be no deep blessing for the trickster where there's no authenticity. But Jacob makes a choice. He finally reveals his name. In face of looking at God, God says, what is your name? He says, I am Jacob. 
And he admits that he hasn't quite got everything sorted. It's a place of admission and self-awareness, a place of breakthrough, a place of authenticity and openness. He stops pretending. So that's my first point from this story. We don't have to be perfect, but we do need to stop pretending. Secondly, we need to get alone with God. You notice that he sent all his flocks and his possessions over. I mean, I think it's quite cowardly. Some people think it's quite clever. It just seems to me a bit odd. You know, you've got this huge encounter with your brother you haven't seen for 20 years. You're really worried about it. What do you do? You send everybody else first. Four sets of flocks to pacify his brother. Um, and he sent all his family over as well. But there is something that prof- comes out profoundly out of this, that he was alone with God. And, you know, we live in a busy world, don't we? phones, we've got stuff, we're busy, it doesn't matter if you're a student, young or old, uh, married, single, it doesn't matter really, we're all busy, it's just something we do. And we have to make time, guys, we need to make time to be alone with God. It's never convenient. Let's not fall for that piece of nonsense that says that there'll be a stage in our lives in the future that'll be easier. It doesn't happen. I was thinking about Mary and Martha. You know that story when um, Jesus in Luke 10, uh, Mary and Martha, uh, Jesus visits their house. Uh, It's in Luke 10. As they continued their travel, Jesus entered a village. A woman by the name of Martha welcomed him and made him feel quite at home. She had a sister, Mary, who just sat before the master, hanging on every word he said. But Martha was pulled away by all she had to do in the kitchen. This is the message version, by the way. Later, she stepped in, interrupting him. Master, don't you care that my sister has abandoned the kitchen to me? Tell her to lend me a hand. And Jesus said, Martha, you're fussing too much. And getting yourself worked up over nothing. Only one thing is essential. And Mary has chosen it. And I think there's something in the DNA of God. He wants us to come to him. So can I encourage us this autumn? Try and find some space with God it could be the car it could be at the sink it could be as you walk it could be as you go to work it could be in the morning Jacob was alone all his support mechanisms had gone all the stuff he'd been relying on and he had a little strategy but he was alone by the river and in that place he meets with God we need to come to a place being on our own with God uncomplicated unhurried authentic accepted children so that's my second point we need to like Jacob find ourselves alone with God the third point is something I think is absolutely amazing it doesn't suggest doesn't suggest in the story that um, Jacob really initiated this whole wrestling thing now it's a bit weird isn't it God appears as an angel in some sort of recognised human form, a theophany it's called. Whether it's God or an angel, or, you know, it's a bit complicated and I don't know the answers, but it's clearly God in some form. But it's God who starts that off. And I think this is really, really profound because although he was alone and he had a big situation come up that he was worried about and he was alone, it's actually God comes to him. And I think God's very kind. I think he comes to us this morning. God initiates that encounter. He wants to be found by Jacob. He wants to be found by us. And he allows this equal wrestle. Now, at the end of the story, when God taps him on the hip, and immediately the hip gets put out of joint, that shows a supernatural encounter. If God wanted to, of course, he touches him, and he's lame for the rest of his life. 
The fact that God allows a wrestle is outrageous. God allows us to come to him and talk to him as partners. This isn't a new thing. Right back in Genesis, God walked in the garden and said, where are you, Adam? It seems to me that God's a relational God. The whole of the Bible narrative, the whole gospel speaks of God being relational. He doesn't need us, but he wants us. He's a relational God. Even a few chapters earlier in Genesis 21, Abraham is talking, uh, God is talking to Abraham about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah for, a bit, or for all their evilness. And he deliberately tells Abraham the story. And what happens? Abraham starts talking to him. Abraham realizes that his, his nephew Lot is going to be destroyed. So he says, God, do you mind if, if there's just a few people that you don't destroy them? And God allow, tells his plans to Abraham and God allows Abraham to change his plans and wants him to talk to him. There's loads of parables, one of which is in Luke 18 where Jesus said that there was an unjust judge who didn't really care about God or people. But over a period of time, a widow goes to him time and time and time again to put her petition to him. And because of her perseverance, the judge gives in. This idea that God allows us to come to him and talk to him and be partners, it's not just this story in Jacob. It's from Genesis. It's through to Jesus saying, God wants us to talk to uh, him. I was reading in the summer from Isaiah, from Isaiah 62. It says about watchmen, I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem. What sort of God allows that to go into his book? He says, and the encouragement is, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest. This is an invitation from God to partner with him and talk to him. This is absolutely incredible. Tell me what other religion does this. Tell me what other religion clears the way for a partnership from God to man as friend to friend. There is no other religion that does that. Uh, it, uh, in our missional community, Connect, and we're meeting on Tuesday if you want to join us, um, we've been looking at 57 words that change the world. It's about the Lord's Prayer. And just read what, um, I read this because um, Steve Thomas, the director of our Salt and Light Network, he recommended it in the summer, and I went and read it, and I recommend it to you. It's a, it's a really good book. This is about the Lord's Prayer, which we're all familiar with, I'm sure. We can pray to him who has almighty power, and it would seem that God has willed that the prayers of his people should be part of the process by which the kingdom comes. I'll read that again. It would seem that God has willed that the prayers of his people should be part of the process by which the kingdom comes. The interaction between the sovereignty of God and the prayers of the saints is part of the ultimate mystery of existence. And faith is called on to take both the sovereignty of God and the prayers of the saints seriously. In talking about the way that Lord's Prayer is set out, he says, The verbs of the Lord's Prayer are addressed to the superior of superiors are in the imperative. This means that they are commands, not requests. Be honored. Kingdom come. Be done. All in the command form. To pray the Lord's Prayer is to command, not to ask. Not that human beings are to order God around, not at all. But the verbs are in the imperative. Now remember that it's Jesus himself who teaches us to do this. 
He is the one who put the verbs in that form. It is Jesus who is telling us to speak to the Father so boldly and forcibly. He is the Son who knows the Father, who knows the Father's heart and mind. He says, be hallowed, your name come, your kingdom be done, your will. This may strike us as somewhat audacious. Who are we to speak to God in such a manner? What helps is to further know that the verbs in the first three petitions are in the passive voice. Be hallowed, come, be done. They are passive to introduce a note of reverence. It's too much to command and order the Father. The passive voice softens the tone. Instead of do it, it's be done. It's not as in your face, but it's still bold enough. Guys, let's just pause for a minute. If this is true, that God, not only through the Jacob story, but all throughout the story of the Bible and through the gospel and the cross, he's cleared out everything that is a problem, everything that's a gap between us. And he welcomes us to partnership, relationship, perseverance. He wants tenacity. He wants us to have confidence when we pray. In the book of James, it says, Elijah was a human being as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would rain, wouldn't rain, and, didn't, and it didn't for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. Simon, you can you just get up? Because you, you've got to understand, like, God is allowing us this. You've got to try and wrestle now. I know you'll be up for this. Yeah? So let's, let's not, let's not, well, let's just, so, you know, God, God is, is he seriously allowing us to pray and say, God, come on, we want your kingdom to come in Oxford this autumn. We want you to come, Lord. We must have more of you. We've got to need more of you, Father. Will you pour out your spirit? Will you see your kingdom come? We want my brother to come to know you, Father. I want him to know you, Lord. Will you convict him of his need of you, Lord? And so you get the idea. This is phenomenal if it's true. And if we believe it. But you know what? Wrestling is quite a masculine thing. It's quite an aggressive thing. Uh, at Transform, when we were camping, um, Esther and I noted this phenomenon around the camp where blokes would talk. And I did it with Stuart Larkin a few times. Just stand up, please, uh, Joe. We would talk. Just look at them. And you, you, blokes stand like this, and they just talk. All right? You talk about the meeting. We just talk like this. Do you know how women talk around the camp? It's like this. They talk face to face. It's much, much more relational. It's eye contact. It's really earnest. Blokes are like, yeah, all right, yeah. Yeah. This is a very profound theological point I'm making here. (laughs) See, this next picture. Look at these two girls talking to each other. And do you know what? When I typed in two friends talking to each other into Google, 98% of the pictures were, were, were girls or women. Because women get this better. Look at those two friends. If you don't like the picture of wrestling, for whatever reason, think of two friends talking to each other earnestly. Look at them. One's got a pad. They're engaged with each other. One's explaining. This is profound, guys. If God is really opening up a partnership with us and is allowing us either to wrestle, if that gets your imagery going and inspires you, great. If you find this more easy to relate to, great, because it's two friends talking to each other eye to eye, earnestly. That's what this story says. 
We're going to have a little break. Those are two questions. So just have four or five minutes. Those are two questions. How can we make space to talk to God? And do we really believe that God invites us to partner with him? Have a little chat. If you're not comfortable with that, then, I don't know, make an excuse, go to the toilet or something. Um, But three or four minutes, just have a conversation. Give me a break as well. Okay. So we've talked about not pretending, being ourselves, being authentic. We've talked about finding space with God. We've talked about God inviting us to partner with him in change and prayer. Jacob perseveres. This is an underrated quality, is it not? And as I said before, you, got, you can't underestimate that we didn't coordinate those words and stories that have come through today. That's the Holy Spirit just speaking. 
So when Bex gets up here and said, I, I wanted to get healed, but I left and I had to go to A&E. But I was saying to God, I want to be healed or something. I, would, I, I need to meet with you. You might as well preach my sermon, Bex. It was great. Because what, what a fantastic attitude that is. Whatever happens, God, I've got to meet with you. This is not complicated. That's an amazing heart for God. It's like, and do you know what? She said, um, we knew she'd gone into hospital last Saturday. So I went and said to her, how are you doing when she turned up on Sunday morning? But she told Esther, she said, I had to come to worship. I wanted to come to worship. You see, there's stuff in our lives that's not quite complete or sorted. But in that stuff, God gets to really know what's in here. The stuff we don't choose, the stuff that's not perfect. And out of Bex, isn't, I'm not saying she's a perfect woman. But what a great attitude. You see, God doesn't look for perfection. He didn't look in Jacob for perfection. The Bible story doesn't allow us to say he was perfect. But it doesn't seem to care. Because what it does say is Jacob wanted God more than the other stuff. And I think that's what Bex showed absolutely clearly. I don't know whether you noticed a few weeks ago, but Eddie Edridge brought a tongue, which if, if that's a bit weird for you this morning, and do talk to something before you leave. But Eddie had a stroke a few years ago and struggles to speak in English, but he brought a tongue. And I, I couldn't listen to it because it breaks my heart because I would like God to heal Eddie, and I'm sure many of us have prayed for him. And I think he could be sitting there. How can I bring a tongue, but God won't heal me to speak English? But do you know what? He just brought a tongue. Why? Because he loves God. He wants to bring what was going on in his heart. I think that is phenomenal. It's in the imperfection of that that's the beauty of it. Now, God, give us some more testimonies and some healing and so we know what to do more so that we know how to pray. And see, I mean, I'm not satisfied, but I tell you what, there's a beauty in that. He brought a tongue very eloquently and he can't quite yet speak in English yet because of his stroke. That's a wonderful attitude, Eddie. There's a Jacob. Bex is a Jacob. Lulu's leaving, but a few weeks ago, I sat behind her at, um, in the service, and Lulu's a wonderful encouragement to us all. And you can see her frailty, but I tell you what, she'd stand up to worship. And then a minute, a minute later, she'd have to sit down because she didn't have the strength. I thought, well, that's impressive. But then you know what? Two minutes later, she stood up again. You can't, can't, you can't stop Lulu worshipping. She sits down again because she's tired. Then she'd be up again. There's a Jacob. This is a heart that God loves. Dave Wong, in, in this, these are all in the summer. I was just thinking about the sermon in the, uh, in the services. And Dave Wong was playing his guitar with a broken finger. I mean, you might have thought, okay, I've, 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 did, you, did you break your finger? Is that right? You might have thought in the week where he broke his finger, that's it, I'm not going to do it, I can't, I can't make it to church, it's ridiculous, I'm playing guitar, I can't play guitar with a broken finger. And he turned up and he played with a plaster on, and that's a Jacob. That's saying, I'm not perfect, but I'm going to press into God, I'm not going to let go. Last week, the um, speaker, I think it was the speaker's wife, said very profoundly about disappointment with God. She said that, God hadn't quite healed a few people in their church and she got a bit disappointed with him and it stopped her praying. 
And she felt the Holy Spirit convicted and said, you've got to let this go. When God doesn't quite perform as we expect him to, we've got a choice to make. Do we worship him and keep pressing into him, or do we get annoyed and offended? If you get annoyed and offended, you're only going one direction. If you can say, Lord, I mean, the, the Bible isn't full of perfect people. If you read the Psalms, David is constantly pouring out his heart to God about the imperfections around him and the people that are hurting him. Christianity is not about airbrushing that out. It's about coming to God with that. This was not a complicated prayer. He says, bless me. And I don't think, I mean, I'm no linguist. I'm not trying to repaint the Bible, but I'm not sure the prayer would have been, bless me. I think it's, I want your blessing. And there's a bit of a difference. Rather than bless me, which could lead you to a sort of name it, claim it type of, I saw a wonderful Jaguar F-type convertible yesterday in Headington. I mean, if I'm going to get into bless me, Lord, I quite fancy one of those. Beautiful thing. Oh. I don't think that's what this is about. This is what, what Jacob said. I think what he says is, Lord, I want your blessing. I want your kingdom. I want more of you. And this is Tommy Tenney, God's favorite house. He's talking about the uncomplexity un- of this prayer. God's people need more than just another good meeting that sends goosebumps up and down their spines. We need a God meeting that leaves us with a limp. Where are the Jacobs who will lay hold on the theophany of God and wrestle with their destiny until it's changed? Who will take hold of God and say, I am not going to let go until you bless me? Many people wonder how Jacob could use such improper, impertinent language with God Almighty. I believe that Jacob, the heel grabber, used the only terminology he understood. I've got to tell you this really wild story. I, um, I've been married to Esther 15 years next year. And uh, I heard some preachers, this is very embarrassing, but you'll laugh. Uh, I heard some preacher talk about how when he didn't have a wife, he, brought, he bought some laundry. And said, Lord, fill this laundry with my future wife. <laughs> and I wish this story wasn't true. Because <laughs> I tell you, I was living in Stafford at the time doing my PTC. And I went into top girl I think and I, and I bought some laundry because I thought that, that, that sounded like a good prayer <laughs> what happened there <laughs> let's just say my cup runneth over <laughs> I mean I wish this wasn't true do you know what? I prayed that prayer and it didn't work. But there was a time about six months later, I was in Woolton Park in Nottingham. And I said to God, I'd like to meet my wife this year and I'd like to be married next year. And I tell you what, that was my prayer. The form of words doesn't matter. The encounter with God and the authenticity does. And we, I did meet Esther and we got married a year later. The bra thing is a weird story which you can laugh at at lunch to whoever you like. The point is, that wasn't my prayer. When I did pray my prayer, I said, Lord, I would really like to be married. And that, that happened. I believe that Jacob, the heel grabber, used the only terminology that he understood. 
He may have become a patriarch, but he wasn't a theologian. People of passion will desperately pursue what the educated tell them can't be caught. Jacob knew what a blessing was because he remembered what happened when his father laid his hand on his head. He said to himself, all I know is that my father's blessing changed my life and made things different. And I've got to have something like that again. The only thing I know to call it is a blessing, so touch me. I've got to have it. I've already had a blessing from the earthly father. Now I need it from my heavenly father. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Now this encounter with God brings some change, doesn't it? Quite like that, uh, that picture. Change, change, change. Oh, same old, same old. <coughs> Excuse me. See, Jacob says, bless me. And what does he do? He gets a name change and a hip replacement. <clears throat> I'm not sure what Jacob understood about what he was asking for. I'm not sure he even knew. He just knew he, knew he had to have more of God. And God changes his name from the wheeler dealer, the Jacob, the heel grabber. From his birth, he has been wheeling and dealing and ducking and diving. And God says, enough. I call you Israel. You struggled with God and man and you overcame. This was a profound recommissioning and redirecting of his life. Up till now, it had been all right. God had spoken to him. He was a bit fruitful. And through this encounter with God, he says, enough is enough. I am renaming you, totally changing you. In the commentary that I read, it says, God's sovereignty and faithfulness to his promises, despite all the unhuman, uh, human unworthiness, is demonstrated. Jacob is no longer the strong, victorious controller of the divine, but Israel, who is totally dependent on God's grace, and, and he's now lame. You see, if we really want to get close to God, it might affect us. I don't think God's that predictable. I think something might happen. If we really want to get close to God, something might happen. Are we willing to have a limp if that means getting close to God? Because the limp reminds Jacob that he has to depend on him for the rest of his life. He may have had a wrestle with God and God's allowed it. Um, and he's one sort of. Of course, God's let him do that. But that limp reminds him that he needs to depend on God. What's your limb? What's, what's the circumstance in your life that reminds you? To, because we're, all, you know, we're competent people. Competency is a little bit of a hindrance sometimes. I don't know about you. My prayer life gets better when I'm under pressure because I'm an idiot. In 2 Corinthians 4, it says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're, we're jars of clay. That's okay. We're imperfect. That's okay. Let's press into God so that his glory can be shown. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking to God and saying, get rid of this thing that's annoying me. Do you know what God says? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. You know, in my 20s and 30s, and I know I don't look it, but I'm going to be 40 in January. And uh, Esther's 40 next Saturday, if you want to think about that. I mean, for a present. I mean, to be nice to her. <laughs> you know, over, when you get older, you can get a bit more mellow, a bit more... You know stuff doesn't work. It's not like this sermon is going to airbrush out all the... We do pray. We have prayed, Freddie. You, we have prayed. Stuff doesn't always happen as you hope. I'm not, I've lived long enough now to know that. 
Is that, is that a David Gray song that says, I used to be so definite? When you're younger, it's like, bish, bash, bosh, pray, this happens, blah. When you're a bit older, it doesn't always quite work like that. And if you're mature enough, you have to accept that. But what do we do with that? Just accept it, downgrade our expectation? Or do we press into God? See, who wants to be a Jacob this morning? Because these are the qualifications. To meet with God and have an encounter with God, these are the qualifications. We have to stop pretending and be ourselves. We have to find some space with God to pray. We have to believe that he invites us to partnership. We have to persevere. We have to be willing to be changed. Let me just finish with another quote from Tommy Tenney. Holy hunger and blessed frustrations can produce a destiny-altering wrestling match. And you should try to lose this fight. But not until you are scared by God's touch. God's touch permanently shriveled Jacob's tendon, so much so that Jews wouldn't eat Jacob's tendon from any animal. Hebrew dietary codes forbid eating things that have died. God put a handle of death in Jacob's life in order to secure his future. Flesh death often produces eternal destiny. Your program may have to die for his purpose to live. I think that we're so full with careers and agendas and man-made machinery that we've lost the simplicity of the manifested presence of God. We desperately need to take up John the Baptist's motto and put it to work in our lives. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's time to call out the Jacobs who have grown so sick of themselves that they will wrestle with their destiny until they've been touched by God, even if they come home with a permanent limp and an eternal change of heart. Change my heart, O God. Change my path, I pray. Touch me with your hand, so I will go your way.